Hello and welcome to this episode of the Art and Design of Sci-Fi and Fantasy, Mystery and Horror. In today's episode, I speak with uh, Professor Keith Booker, who's written a, a cultural history of Star Trek. So thank you and enjoy. I'm speaking with Professor Keith Booker, author of Star Trek, A Cultural History. Thank you for speaking with me. Uh, thank you for having me. So first, um, tell me how you got into studying and writing on the cultural history of Star Trek. Well, uh, that's uh, really there's a long story and a short story to that, I guess. The long story is that I've been a fan of Star Trek since it was originally on since the 1960s and have followed it through its various reincarnations uh, over the years. Uh, the short story is that uh, in my work as a professor of English at the University of Arkansas, I've done a lot of uh, academic research and written a lot of academic books. And, and I've either written or edited over 50 books, actually, most of them very academic, though. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to get into something that was accessible to a broader audience, uh, and something that was uh, that I could do in a little bit more uh, relaxed way and you know, still uh, provide academic rigor, but also just do it from the point of view of a fan and for fans. Mm-hmm. And when I start, started thinking about a project that I could do that way, Star Trek was really the thing that uh, came to mind because it's been a part of my life for over half a century mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. Uh, going back to the 1960s. I really didn't see much of Star Trek when it was on in the 60s. Uh, in my house, we had one small black and white television, and you know, Star Trek was on NBC. And the rule in our house was basically we were, whenever my father was home, we weren't allowed to watch anything except CBS. Ah. He considered all channels other than CBS. He called them those foreign stations. <laughs> uh, and so we only watched CBS when he was around. He was usually around when Star Trek was on. So I probably saw like two episodes of Star Trek when it was originally on. But in the seventies, when it was on in syndication. Uh, I can remember. I, I actually, being a professor of English is my second career. My, my original education was in physics uh, and engineering, mm. and I spent uh, 14 and a half years on the scientific research staff at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember the when I was first working at Oak Ridge, I used to come home every night and, and uh, watch Star Trek in syndication. It came on five nights a week. And one of the things I really looked forward to after a hard day at the laboratory was uh, coming home and watching Star Trek. So I've always, I have a background in science. I've always been interested in science. I've been reading science fiction regularly since I was in about the third grade. Uh, so Star Trek was just a perfect thing for me. And I followed all the other series uh, as they come along. About uh, 10 years, a little over 10 years ago, I guess now, I wrote a book called Science Fiction Television, which is a kind of cultural history of science fiction television in general, mm-hmm. uh, much broader than the Star Trek book, and also a little more academic than the Star Trek book, but uh, as part of the research for that book, I went back and rewatched every episode of every Star Trek series, wow. uh, and really enjoyed revisiting those series uh, at that time. I've been sort of looking forward ever since to having an opportunity to go back again, and so that's what brought me to this current book. And I saw that you've also written about um, culture of comic books and, and other things. I'm interested, I mean, I've written about, you know, James Joyce and all kinds of literature. My doctoral dissertation was on uh, James Joyce, so I've written about a lot of what you might call highbrow literature, but I've always had a special interest in pop cultural kinds of topics, uh, and usually had to approach them using some of the same techniques and methodologies that we usually use for literature. So I've done a lot of work with comic books, a lot of work with science fiction in general, a lot of work with television and film uh, in general. And I just wanted to call, so before you said your your father called the other non-CBS stations foreign stations, is that correct? Yeah, he said those, he just called them those foreign stations. I mean, with a certain amount of irony, but his point was that, you know, he just only felt at home on CBS and all the other programming it seemed kind of strange and alien to him. Oh, interesting. Um, all right, so uh, let's talk about uh, this book. How do you uh, break it out? How, how do you break it down? Well, I mean, what... This book is uh, is focused on the original series from the 1960s, those, those three years of the original series from 66 to 69. Uh, and that's the part of Star Trek that gets detailed treatment. I look at it in particular within the context of the 60s and 
the oppositional political movements that were going on in the 60s, the way the series deals with things that were relevant to the anti-Vietnam War movement, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, those sorts of things. Uh, but uh, I also look at the original series as, if you will, the prehistory of all the other series. So even though the focus is uh, very strongly on the original series, I always keep the other series in mind as I talk about the original series, looking forward to how it uh, um, serves as a precursor of the other series, how the other series try to replicate certain things that the original series did, how they try to get beyond certain things that uh, maybe the little series, the original series fell short in, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to ask a question based on uh, what I read in the introduction. Uh, you made one point that... Um, NBC had a d- difficult time trying to figure out what to do with Star Trek, um, you know, where to put it, how to market it. And I'm curious how that sort of uh, contrasts with uh, uh, some of the other sci-fi um, that was coming out at the time, which wasn't much, like CBS had, um, I guess, Irwin Allen was put, putting out. Um, yeah, Irwin Allen had a whole series of series at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably the most popular other science fiction series that the Rook Contemporary of Boston so, and I also noticed uh, Men Into Space, but that came out pretty early, But and that was all CBS stuff, so so one, I'm curious how, was CBS the, the sort of pioneer, and was NBC trying to get into that, or, or do you know that whole history? Well, I, I think that uh, it really wasn't so much that uh, Star Trek was uh, an attempt to replicate the success that other start that other science fiction series had had because one of the reasons why NBC had so much trouble figuring out what to do with uh, Star Trek was that uh, science fiction series just had had a dismal track record to that point uh, and had typically not worked well. Even though science fiction was very popular in other venues, let's say in the 1950s. It just didn't really work well for television. They didn't have the technology to do it well. They didn't have the you know ways of doing the special effect. Uh, and while they had a few attempts at science fiction series, the closest thing to a, a really successful you know they had like Tom Corbett, Space Ranger, and those kinds of things. But uh, those Space Ranger and Space Cadet kinds of shows were typically uh, very very uh, primitive. The, super, the original Superman television series. Uh, has some science fictional elements, and that was pretty successful. But in general, science fiction had been uh, very unsuccessful. In fact, really, the the main way that Gene Roddenberry was able to get NBC's attention was to essentially pitch uh, Star Trek as a kind of Western. Because Westerns had a, a exactly the opposite record. They had been extremely successful on television, uh, and Roddenberry himself had written a few episodes here and there for, for Western television shows and had some experience with it, as did some of the other people involved in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, it's a very well-known story how he originally pitched it as Wagon Train to the Stars, because Wagon Train, in a couple of years before that, has been the number one show on television. And the idea of, you know, pioneers going out into the West in Wagon Trains struck Roddenberry being somewhat similar to the idea of going out and exploring outer space. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, everybody knows the, the famous beginning of Star Trek where they re- refer to space as the final frontier. Mm-hmm. And so they very, very overtly tried to link uh, the exploration of space to the uh, taming of the American West, while at the same time trying to uh, get away from uh, some of the uh, more problematic aspects of the Western, in particular the you know the encounters with Native Americans, the way Native Americans have been depicted in racist ways uh, in a Western film, and also just the way you know Native Americans had to be dealt with in taming the West. So, in one of Roddenberry's uh, uh, main uh, insistences was that they this was not to be a voyage of conquest. This was to be a voyage of discovery. So they're not going out, they're not trying to, to colonize outer space, they're not trying to uh, conquer other civilizations, they're just trying to meet with other civilizations and talk with them and exchange ideas. And, you know, they have 
this thing called the Prime Directive, where if they meet a civilization that's considerably uh, less advanced than the United Federation of Planets, then basically they just have to stay away with from them and not share any technology or ideas with them so that they can just develop on their own until they get to the point where they can develop, uh, where they can communicate on the same level uh, as the Federation. So you have this, this idea of basically a sort of enlightened version uh, of the Western now placed in outer space. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that he um, pitched it as a Western um, in in space because if you look, you know, so they have a number of episodes that sort of um, go into the past or or reflect the past. You know, Roman Roman gods, the gangsters, um, right? Other things, but I don't think they really did any Western type episodes at all. Maybe the closest was the one with the the sort of Native American woman. You know, she seemed right. like it. Right, the Paradise Syndrome. Uh, they, that does happen occasionally, uh, but it happens more in, and more overtly in some of the later series. Uh, but one of the things that they do in the original series, uh, basically to, to try to, to add flexibility and to keep it fresh, uh, is to basically explore a different genre uh, every week. And so that, that allows them to explore different genres if they would uh, you know, have series episodes that are set with Greek gods or with whatever uh, aspects from the past, uh, and that I think was largely uh, something that was the inspiration for that being taken much further in later series like The Next Generation, where uh, you know they have the holodecks where they can re- literally recreate the environment of various past civilizations. And so the characters can go and visit those, uh, and uh, and they do in note that case have some episodes that are actually westerns, where they go back, for example, to the gunfight at the OK Corral and get involved in that, um, you know, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you also mentioned something in the introduction that was uh, pretty inspiring, and it kind of builds on what you had just said, which is, um, you know, Star Trek wasn't about you know, dealing with the apocalypse or invading aliens or or anything. It literally was, how do we, di- you know, how do we bring the great things of society to others but without doing it in a colonial sort of way? Right. Yeah. That was very central, I think, to what they were trying to do. So was, um, do you know what the writing staff was like? Was it basically Roddenberry or did he have others? And, and I ask because I'm wondering how, who might have been pushing various social issues and that sort of thing when they wrote the episodes? Yeah, they had... Roddenberry was certainly very hands-on in the original series, so he kind of drifted away after that. Uh, but they had uh, a number of different writers uh, involved uh, in the original series uh, as regulars. But what Roddenberry really did that uh, helped to make the original series special was reach out to... Uh, other writers, like very well-known science fiction writers. Uh, Harlan Ellison probably is the, the best example of that, uh, who wrote, uh, uh, you know, the, the, some of the best-known episodes of the, city, of the series, like The City on the Edge of Forever, probably the, the most beloved episode of the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was uh, a very well-known science fiction writer, and basically, and Roddenberry, did not, wasn't able to get an episode from Isaac Asimov, who was probably the, the leading science fiction writer at the time, uh, because Asimov had, had recently basically started only writing uh, non-fiction books, but Asimov did actually become good friends with Roddenberry and gave a lot of advice uh, to the series and that sort of thing, but Theodore uh, Sturgeon, there's just a whole uh, litany of science fiction writers who had already established uh, a, a fairly major reputation uh, as science fiction novelist who came on board and wrote episodes for uh, Star Trek. Richard Matheson, another one who had written a lot for Star for uh, The Twilight Zone, for example, and had also written novels. Uh, Norman Spinrad, uh, who became a little bit better known later. Uh, so there were a lot of fairly well-known science fiction writers that Roddenberry reached out to and, and got uh, scripts from. Uh, and uh, David Gerald is another who was unknown at the time but became a fairly well-known novelist that has 
has maintained a, a sort of association with the Star Trek uh, franchise ever since. So there were writing was, I think, one of the real strengths of the original series because they had so many well-established science fiction authors uh, who were involved. I think that's also one of the reasons why the original Star Trek has a kind of unusually literary quality to it. I think a lot of people felt like uh, it went beyond the quality of most 1960s television in terms of the development of characters and, and in terms of the ability to treat complicated issues in ways that weren't overtly heavy-handed, though certainly they did have their heavy-handed issues. But, but, but you know, Star Trek ultimately really is about the characters. I mean, it, you have that basic utopian vision of a future where technology has allowed us to solve all of our social and economic problems and just explore... Uh, you know, our, our potential as human beings. Uh, but the key to representing that utopia is the crew of the Enterprise. And the way you have this multicultural crew of, from various nations, even various planets, who are able to get along with each other and interact and work together, uh, and, uh, you know, in ways that you really didn't see a lot on television in the 1960s. So you had, People like Bahura, uh, an African American uh, woman character who became really an inspiration for a lot of African American women uh, later because they'd just never seen an African American woman in a position uh, like that. Uh, or, you know, Lieutenant Thulu, George Takei, who became first uh, an inspiration for Asian Americans and then later for. Uh, for sort of a gay icon as, as he came out uh, as, a, as a gay man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, all in all, you know, it comes down really to the, the three central characters, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, mm-hmm. who are such very, very different people. I mean, Spock is, is only half human and half Vulcan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, you know, they had their disagreements, and they were always grumbling and complaining about each other in various ways. But they ultimately really developed a strong bond and really got along well and, uh, and I think that was always the heart of the series mm-hmm. it's actually um, I never thought about this but uh, before but um, Vulcan or Spike's half Vulcan half human um, uh, heritage you know you basically had an interspecies uh, marriage which seemed like a subtle um, sort of exploration of interracial marriage uh, in the show, I don't know if it was meant to be that, but but now that I think about it, it sort of was. I think if you think about it that way, it certainly is. I mean, it, it actually, in some ways, is even more daring than if he had been entirely Vulcan. But uh, Roddenberry, I know, viewed it as a kind of compromise. So the the people at NBC were a little bit nervous about having a major character who was an alien. So he he said, "Well, let's make him half alien and half human." Uh, and and that seemed more palatable at the time. But if you think about it, in some ways, that is more radical because of the suggestion of interspecies breeding, which leads to uh, the suggestion of interracial relationships. And of course, the the series is famous for the moment uh, in which Captain Kirk and Uhura share a kiss, that's supposedly the first interracial kiss to ever broadcast on American television. Mm-hmm. Even though it's, it's done under kind of odd circumstances, and they're kind of forced into it by. You know, super aliens who are controlling them, but uh, it, it's still something that uh, was groundbreaking at the time. Mm-hmm. I think I, I've heard from some older fans that that it was sort of a thrilling moment for some of them. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people. I mean, again, it's the '60s, especially when it was originally broadcast. But yet, after after it's been in syndication for decades, and people have seen all the episodes, you know, multiple times. Uh, it, it may lose a little bit of that original kind of uh, thrill, but at the time, you know, there were a lot of things that people saw in Star Trek that they'd just never seen anywhere before on television. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for a lot of people who were really hoping, you know, for big changes in the world in the 60s, to see things like that on television was pretty exciting. Did do you know if Star Trek, the original series, had a lot of, well, compared... Uh Fan mail versus maybe mail that was antagonistic about some of the stuff they were they were pushing. They they got an unprecedented amount of fan mail, uh, literally more than any other series in history, and ultimately more than all of CBS's other series. I mean NBC's other series put together, mm-hmm. uh, and almost all of it 
Uh, I mean, Star Trek was never like a huge hit. And uh, when the reason it only lasted three years is because it just wasn't a big rating success. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the people who did like it really liked it. I mean, they absolutely loved it and were very devoted fans. And you know, there was they almost canceled Star Trek after two seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fan uh, activism in terms of writing in, literally having uh, uh, demonstrations in the streets outside of NBC headquarters in New York, uh, people really mobilized to support the series uh, and managed to win uh, another season for it. But their ratings went down even more in the third season. And, and I think most people feel like the third season was probably the weakest season of the series. Uh, and so it, it wasn't able to survive more than another year, but it always drew far more fan mail. I mean, they, NBC had to completely change their methods for dealing with fan mail because they just never had a phenomenon like this before. Why, um, why did, why was the third season weak? What, what changed on the show that would have caused that? I think, uh, Partly, they just started running out of energy. I think, really, a lot of people involved with the show probably had already resigned themselves to it being finished after two seasons, and then suddenly they say, "No, no, go do another season." It's like Babylon Five; the same thing happened. You know, it was almost canceled after four seasons, but they went ahead and ran the fifth season, and the fifth season is just terrible mm-hmm. because they kind of run out of uh, ideas. But I think it was partly that, uh, partly just the fact that. A lot of the people who were involved were pretty sure it was going to get canceled after the third season anyway, so they just had trouble getting re-energized to, to, to do new things. Mm-hmm. But they had the same budget and, and sort of same kind of writers and that sort of thing, right? Same actors. Yeah, but it, you know, it was never a, a, an adequate budget. Mm-hmm. So, and do you also discuss um, Star Trek Discovery in the book? To an extent. I, I uh, The Star Trek Discovery was uh, actually just beginning to be broadcast when I was finishing up the book and I did manage to get through all of the first season before I had to turn the book into the publisher so there is some commentary on Star Trek Discovery but it's, it's, it's very minimal, less than any of the other series and I'm still trying to figure out my attitude about Star Trek Discovery because it, it seemed to me to be rather weak uh, in the beginning I, I didn't like it uh, very much at all and you know I, I was sort of watching it in parallel with the Orville on Fox mm-hmm. and I always felt like, like the Orville was really much more true to the spirit of Star Trek than Star Trek Discovery was so mm-hmm. uh, the Orville I liked a great deal but Star Trek Discovery kind of redeemed itself at the end at the end of the season there were a lot of things that just seemed really off in the first part of the season and then in the second half of the season, they sort of had explanations for why that was that that uh, that uh, helped it to recover a little bit. So I'm I'm, I'm hoping it's going to do go forward and be better. And of course, there's the new Picard series that, mm-hmm. that's uh, in uh, the planning stages now. So it looks like the Star Trek uh, franchise might be on the verge of being re-energized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let me ask you about uh, what you used for the research. Um, in this book, obviously, you watch the episodes and stuff. But did you also were you able to do interviews or what other information did you gather for this? I didn't do any interviews. I, I did watch every episode of the original series, specifically for this book, and selected episodes of the other series. Though for an earlier book, as I said, I watched every episode of every series. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I uh, read it. You know, there's the amount of material that's available on Star Trek is just staggering. Uh, and so I read, for example, as many books in particular as I could because I wanted to make sure that this book was different and, and did things that other books hadn't already done. And I, I think I was able to do that because most of the books are either completely fan-oriented without any kind of uh, academic analysis or they're completely academic and a little bit too dry for a general audience. So I tried to sort of go somewhere in between and, again, emphasize the, the first series of the prehistory of all the other series so that I could do a detailed readings of episodes in the first series uh, but still have things that were uh, important uh, uh, in the later series uh, covered in the, the book. And, and I did things like I, I taught a course on Star Trek in, in the midst of writing the book mm. just to uh, try out some of the ideas and to get some feedback from students because it's always 
it's always good to be reminded that people of a, for people of a certain age, when you say Star Trek, like when you say Star Trek to me, I think of the original series first, and the other series are kind of secondary. Mm-hmm. But I think to my students, when you even though it's, it's still a little bit before their times, when but when you say Star Trek, they usually think of the next generation as, as sort of the the center of the Star Trek uh, franchise, mm-hmm. and they think of the original Star Trek as some ancient thing that you know sort of came before and then the others are just things that came after but I think one of the one of the most rewarding things about teaching the course was that how many of the students after the course uh, came out saying wow they never really appreciated how good the first series was uh, until that class and uh, so they were they were really exciting about going back and maybe watching the whole series we, we probably looked at Twenty episodes, maybe during the course of, of uh, the class. That's all we got time for. But a lot of students were were revved up watching all of them because uh, I was able to convince them that it was really worth doing. Yeah. I mean, there's some clunkers. I mean, there are some bad episodes. I guess in any series that you can think of, but mm-hmm. but in general, there's so many memorable episodes. I think Star Trek probably more than any television series, and and the original series is especially true. Uh, I think. Has very distinctive episodes that people can remember, uh, as opposed, and I think it's partly because of the way the plot structure is. You know, now almost all television series have continuous plots, so it just goes from one episode to another, and the plot just continues. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the original series, they were still rebooting every week, so that they could kind of started at the same place every week, and then had a whole fresh uh, series of developments until each each week could be. Con- uh, completely different uh, in in a lot of ways than all of the other ones, mm-hmm. and and that gave the the episodes a kind of special quality. And obviously, that continuous plot model works really well these days. It works especially well for you know Netflix series and things like that, where you can binge watch them and watch several episodes in a row mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to just one a week. But there's still something to be said for that episodic structure that the original series had, where so that each uh, episode can can just be special unto itself, and and a lot of people who don't like some episodes of, of the original series uh, really like others, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to most series now. If you if you you know you either like the whole series or you don't like the whole series, mm-hmm. and it's hard to pick out individual episodes that stand out, except for the occasional. You know, one of the things that some episodes, some series, the X Files, I think, was the real pioneering series in this sense, is that. They had uh, they had uh, a continuous plot, but then they also had episodic episodes that, that didn't really fit in with the continuous plot. Hmm. And then they also had what I call ludic episodes, just playful episodes that were basically a parody of all the other episodes that they would have. And there's not that many. I mean, in the whole run of Star Trek, I mean, in the whole run of The X-Files, there's maybe uh, a dozen ludic episodes, uh, but they would have episodes that were just, uh, entirely comical, and they, they're really some of the best television ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the original series, you don't have a lot of those. The trouble with Tribble is, is pretty close to a, a, an entirely ludic episode, though it does have some some real developments with the Klingons and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But almost every episode of the original series had some comedy in it. There's a, there's a, a, a mm-hmm. lot of moments, uh, even in the midst of fairly tense episodes, uh, that are kind of comic, and those usually involve interplay between Spock uh, and McCoy in particular because they just see the world so differently and uh, mm-hmm. each one is so perplexed by the other and, and their behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you touch, so the book touches on the um, shows and movies, but do you also get into um, the Star Trek uh, novels, comic books, games, that sort of thing? I talk about the phenomena of games and novels and uh you know, fan uh, zines, as they call them, fan magazines. Uh, I talked some about uh, the phenomenon of Star Trek conventions and Star Trek merchandising. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I tried to look at uh, the whole context of the series in terms of its cultural history. And so as I was doing that, I, I looked at all of these, if you will, peripheral uh, text. One of the things I did was looked at a lot of, of documentaries. There's an amazing number of documentaries on the Star Trek phenomenon. Mm-hmm. William Shatner's almost made it into a one-man industry. I don't know how many 
documentaries he's been personally involved in, some, sometimes as a director even, mm-hmm. uh, at, at least as a central figure. Uh, and a lot of those documentaries touch on the fan culture because that's clearly what has made Star Trek last. I mean, there's no other series from the 1960s that people still are devoted to the way people are devoted to Star Trek. And the reason is because the fans have participated in the series uh, in a way that goes beyond anything that has ever happened before. I mean, the, the whole phenomenon of conventions uh, and, you know, comic cons and things like that has become uh, a big industry in these states. But the, the Star Trek conventions were really the forerunners of all of that and the ones that made that into a thing. And so a lot of people really became invested in the series because they would go to the conventions, they'd buy the merchandise, they would meet other people who had similar interests, they would get an opportunity with the fanzines to write about the series, to write even fiction. You know, there's an extensive um, body of fan fiction on Star Trek where basically fans would just imagine potentially new episodes uh, of the series mm-hmm. uh, and write up what would happen if this happened. And then there's, there's this whole uh, phenomenon of K-slash-S fiction, for example, or Kirk and Spock fiction, which usually involves uh, homosexual relationships between Kirk and Spock that people imagine. <laughs> mm. you know, so there's all kinds of subcultures within mm. uh, the culture of Star Trek. Yeah. So the um, the Star Trek conventions, um, did they were they an offshoot of the... Um world science fiction conventions that were going on at the time, or did they grow up independently, or how did they interact? I think they were pretty independent, and in fact the the, the science fiction conventions that go all the way back to the, the end of the 1930s uh, had been around for a while, but had a very different character to them. They were much more muted sorts of things, and the people involved in those conventions originally really kind of look down on their nose at the people involved in the Star Trek conventions because there's no marketing or, or that sort of thing originally involved in the, the world science fiction conventions although they're, they're, all the world cons and things have marketing now but mm-hmm. at the time in the 60s the Star Trek conventions were the first ones to where it became a big commercial enterprise the people were selling lots of merchandise the people were paying uh, the actors and, and principals in uh, Star Trek for appearing at the conventions. I mean, there were for for years and years after the the series was canceled. A lot of the actors' primary source of income was appearing at conventions, and even today, you know, more than half a century later, William Shatner can still command upwards of fifty thousand dollars for an appearance at a convention. But it's still pretty good money to just show up and be Bill Shatner, you know, for a couple of hours. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, and that that kind of commercialism, uh, which now reigns supreme in conventions, was really looked down on by the the older conventions. But the older conventions were very quickly eclipsed. I mean, the, the Star Trek conventions uh, really took off, and you know, there, nobody really cared that uh, the uh, older conventions were were uh, offended by them. Did the um, did the Star Trek conventions um, help inspire any of the comic art or comic book conventions? Did they come out? Did they develop yeah, I after? Definitely. I think definitely. And, and, you know, there's always been a crossover between those communities because, uh, again, one of Star Trek's ongoing life was in uh, comic in comic books. And there was an, even an animated series on children's television uh, shortly after the cancellation of the original series. Uh, and so there's always been a lot of crossover between those uh, two communities, and still is probably even more now than there was back in the '60s. And I think probably uh, Star Trek played—you know—I'm I'm not sure you can measure exactly how important Star Trek was in that, but I, I think it's almost surely the case that Star Trek played a central role uh, in uh, sort of establishing communication between the comic book fans uh, on the one hand and science fiction fans on the other hand. Could you say that um, among the uh, sci-fi uh, TV or entertainment that came out before and then during the time Star Trek was out, it seems like those other efforts were more aimed at maybe children or younger audiences, whereas Star Trek seemed made a little bit more for adults? I, I think that's absolutely true. Certainly in the 50s, Tom Corbin and things like that were aimed very specifically at children. Lost in Space is largely aimed uh, at children, you know. Gene Roddenberry, in fact, 
one of his, you know, he had he had certain kind of rules that he laid down that, that had to be followed in the original series. Uh, and one is that he specifically wanted to appeal to adult audiences. One, one of his ground rules was no cute kids or pets uh, on the ship. That eventually would sort of be, uh, that rule would be broken in some of the later series. But originally, you know, things like Lost in Space, you always had to have a kid or you had to have a pet or you had to have something, you know, that, that would really appeal to children in these series. And uh, Roddenberry wanted to make it clear that they weren't trying to appeal to children specifically, though he didn't mind appealing to children, but he just didn't want to limit it to that. And in fact, Star Trek had a lot of, uh, of uh, fairly young fans. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of people tell stories. You know, I, I mentioned coming home from work at Oak Ridge National Laboratory and watching Star Trek every, every night. But there's also a lot of people who have stories of coming home from school every day and watching Star Trek on uh, in syndication. Because in some places it would come on at, at say, 4 p.m. every day during the week, specifically designed for, for kids to watch after they came home from school. So it's not that kids didn't like Star Trek. It's just that it didn't cater to children. Uh, and, and play to that audience. It, it really was pitched to an adult audience, and if kids liked it, then so much the better. Do you think um, Roddenberry saw sort of um, a grown-up audience that had grown up from the uh, sort of 30s and 40s, you know, radio plays, Flash Gordon, Superman? Did he see a market for an older audience that was now ready for um, that stuff as adults? Does that make sense? I think he did, but I think he was also very well aware of what was going on uh, in science fiction itself in the 1960s. A lot of people involved in science fiction uh, going into the 60s were determined to make science fiction itself a little bit more adult uh, Mm -hmm. because they were tired of people thinking of it as something that was for teenage boys or even younger uh, and so, you know, they had this phenomenon called the new wave in science fiction, which, in which writers, were, it, was, it was a very big phenomenon in both England and the United States, uh, in which writers were trying to write more adult stories and stories that really made sense, that used science that was actually legitimate science as a, a framework for the story that had, you know, real characters that were developed uh, instead of just being, uh, points for the, the action to concentrate on. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was a movement to make more mature science fiction. And then as the 60s proceeded, of course, there was also a movement within the same movement. I mean, it's still part of the new wave. The people who were involved in the new wave also became involved in the political climate of the 60s and wanted to make science fiction more uh, responsive to the uh, world around it. And so people began to write a lot of uh, stories uh, about um, racism and sexism and you know anti-war stories and things like that, and so I think Star Trek is very much part of a, a much larger phenomenon in science fiction in the 1960s. And as I said, Roddenberry reached out to uh, science fiction writers, uh, you know, like Norman Spinrad, uh, for example, whose novel *Bug Jack Barrett, is one of the leading novels of the New Wave, was also a Star Trek writer, mm-hmm. and uh, so there was a, a conscious effort on the part of Roddenberry to bring the energies of the new wave uh, into Star Trek, as opposed to most of the other science fiction series, which specifically tried to avoid that. They they mm-hmm. felt like it, you know maybe it was a little bit much for television, maybe it's a little bit too uh, controversial, maybe it was a little bit too uh, adult. You know, there's a there's a sort of infantilization that occurs in uh, television because of the fear of offending anyone. Uh, and, of course, Star Trek you know, didn't last very long, partly because uh, it uh, didn't compromise. In the- I mean, it did. I mean, Roddenberry constantly uh, struggled with the network in terms of what they were allowed to do and what they weren't allowed to do. But, mm-hmm. but I think one of the things that really set Star Trek apart was that they consciously tried to import the energies of the new way as opposed to the Irwin Allen series, for example, that consciously tried to exclude the energies of the new way. Hmm. Interesting. And um, I asked my que- my question about generations um, who are interested in it, because I think, like, nowadays, I don't think all the superhero films we see now would be as popular if you didn't have the, um, the people who are in their 40s and 50s who grew up with 
the 70s and 80s comics, comic books that these movies are based on. I feel like you do have a young audience, but you also have this older audience that, that yearns for, you know, the nostalgic feel of seeing their old heroes on screen. So that's sort of where I was going with that. Oh, yeah, and I think if you look at the uh, Star Trek film, uh, you can see, even in the very first film that comes out at the end of the 70s, there's already a strong nostalgia element there because it's over 10 years since the series was on broadcast television mm-hmm. by that point. Uh, and so it, there was always a nostalgia element uh, to those series. Uh, and in recent years, it, you know, the recent Star Trek uh, films have been a, an, an interesting kind of hybrid because they've tried to, uh, you know, up the level of action and build in state-of-the-art uh, special effects and have lots of fancy technology and explosions and whatever, while at the same time still drawing on that uh, nostalgia effect and looking back in very specific ways to the um, specific uh, scenes, for example, in, in some of the earlier series. There there's whole scenes from the original series that are replicated in some of the, the recent uh, Star Trek films. Mm-hmm. So let me ask, um, what part of this research was most enjoyable for you? I mean, I think ultimately maybe just watching the episodes again was the most enjoyable for me because it had been uh, probably at least 10 years since I had seen any episode of any Star Trek series because I was off working on other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time uh, and so uh, and I'll, I think probably also having watched hundreds keep in mind when you watch every episode of every series you're talking around I don't know 600 episodes or something wow. <laughs> uh, so I was probably a little burned out back when I, I did that earlier book uh, and so after not having seen Star Trek for over 10 years it was it was really fun to go back and watch the uh, series again but I think one of the things that maybe surprised me a little bit was how much fun it was to teach Star Trek to uh, students. Uh, and, I, and I taught a mixed class that had both graduate students and undergraduate students, and they had you know, a, a mixed degree of, of familiarity with the series and also a mixed degree of sophistication in how they approached the series. Uh, but it was it was really good to see. I, I, I think, and I've taught a number of those mixed classes over the years, and, and usually there's a huge kind of dichotomy between the undergraduates and the graduate students. And I think uh, Star Trek was the thing that I've seen in my teaching that worked the best uh, in a mixed class like that because everybody could relate to it in their own way. Uh, and, uh, and you know, I had, it, it was, to, to me, given my background in history, it was kind of shocking. I literally had some students in the class who had never seen an episode of Star Trek at all Hmm. But he just kind of heard about it, you know, and so he decided, well, here's a whole class on it. Maybe, maybe this was their chance to, to get caught up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there were others that were very familiar and had seen, you know, pretty much every episode. Uh, but regardless of their experience, I think everybody uh, was able to really enjoy uh, the class and get into the discussions about the different episodes. And uh, I, I literally don't think there was a single student who, who seemed estranged from the material like sometimes happens in literature classes. Mm-hmm. Did you have many science and engineering students in that class, or was it mostly English or literature types? Uh, it was mostly. I mean, I, I, I'd have to look. I, there were a few students who were not English majors, mm-hmm. but there were, I believe, 27 students in the class, and of those, probably over 20 were English majors for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just... Uh, it was it was an upper level English class, and, and those tend to, to scare away uh, people who are not English majors. So I, we did have a couple of people who were uh, not English majors, but to tell the truth, I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head exactly what they were majors in. Mm-hmm. So what did you find that was most surprising as you did your research and looked at these episodes again? I think in a way, what was surprising to me was. Uh, how well they still work. Uh, you know, it, it's hard for these, you know, when I go into working these episodes, I basically know everything that's going to happen. Uh, and so there's, there's, there's not a lot of, uh, suspense in the plot. Uh, and, 
I'm, you know, the production values in that original series were really low compared to, say, the recent films and that sort of thing in terms, you know, they're famous for their styrofoam locks and their, <laughs> their uh, aliens who are just guys in rubber suits mm. and things like that. Uh, but it, it really still works. Uh, I, I was uh, a little afraid uh, that I was going to, uh, to, uh, damage my memories of the series by going back and watching it at this point in time and, and suddenly realized hey, this really isn't all that good. Mm. But it turns out it was just the opposite. It was, it was even better than I remembered it being. Mm. Uh, and so I really, I, I think I was surprised that I enjoyed uh, watching the original series uh, again uh, so much. I think partly it was because it's so easy to watch now. When I did that original book, uh, the, uh, for some reason, the original series was not all available on DVD at that time. Most of the other series were available on DVD, and I probably had to do with copyrights or something, but I remember I had to really scramble collecting episodes of the original series, and I ended up not even watching them in order, although it doesn't really matter much what order you watch them in, but this was literally the first time I had actually sat down and been able just to seamlessly go to all available on streaming video. I think, I think they were all on Netflix at the time. Mm. I was doing the book, and so I just watched them straight through from beginning to end uh, without any interruptions. That's the first time I'd ever done that, and I, I you know, really uh, enjoyed doing it. But the other thing that surprised me probably the most is just uh, how well uh, my students were able to relate to it when I did that class. Uh, they were, uh, at the end of the class, their, probably their most common comment was that they hoped I would... Uh, do a, another uh, class the next year focusing on the next generation to the TOS and then maybe just do one <laughs> series per year you know going forward <laughs> so was there a, a question or issue you came across that was particularly difficult to come to a conclusion on or maybe you feel you don't yet have a full uh, grasp of not really in the original series I think the, the, the most difficult thing to deal with is the treatment of gender. I think it's probably much less enlightened in its treatment of gender than it is in uh, its treatment of race and its, its treatment of the Vietnam War and issues like that. I mean, one of the interesting things is the treatment of the Vietnam War because the series begins, is actually pro-Vietnam War in the beginning, and you can just see it evolve into a strongly anti-war stance by the end, and basically tracking, you know, the sort of a the uh, overall opinions of the American population. Mm. But if you look at the original series in terms of gender, uh, you know, the, the, the famous example, of course, is the, the way all the men just wear sort of normal-looking uniforms and all the, the women have, have, like, super short miniskirts right. uh, as their uniforms. And, and um, there are really no women... Uh, other than Ahura in positions of any authority, and she's in kind of a secondary position of authority. Uh, and so there are, even even in the later series, there's an episode of Deep Space Nine, for example, that looks back to the trouble with Tribbles, uh, and uh, in which they some of the characters from Deep Space Nine get uh, transported back to that world, and they even make a running joke out of the, the miniskirts that the women are wearing in the original series. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... <clears throat> Uh, I, I think they really tried hard. It, it took them a while. You know, eventually in Voyager they had a female captain and so on and so forth. So they tried really hard to move uh, in directions that have uh, been more progressive in terms of their treatment of gender. In Discovery, gender is probably the issue that they treat most progressively. They have, mm-hmm. they have problems with other genders, uh, with other issues, I think, in terms of their depiction of the Klingons, for example, seems to be kind of disturbingly racist um, and that sort of thing, but their, their treatment of gender is very open-minded and they have, you know, gay characters and strong female characters and various other uh, things going on that are that are pretty much uh, state-of-the-art in terms of uh, American social attitudes. But in the original series, they're, they're, they were definitely lagging behind the, the women's movement in terms of their treatment of, of gender issues. Was there anything you discovered that uh, emotionally moved you, either positively or negatively? I'm not sure there was anything. I mean, I used to find 
Uh, I think back in the 70s, I found the original series very moving. Uh, now, it's, it's hard to find it terribly emotionally moving because I'm just so familiar with it. Mm. But I do remember back in the 70s, and I think a lot of people have had this experience, who were fans of the series, who were maybe, you know, nerdy people of some sort, mm-hmm. who would really identify with uh, Spock, and I think a lot of people of, of that persuade of the nerd persuasion <laughs> uh, have always uh, found uh, Spock to be somebody that they could identify with far more than the human characters, uh, because a lot of a lot of a lot of us felt in high school that we were sort of aliens and, and, and outsiders. Uh, but I think that maybe the one thing that I found uh, that I hadn't thought about that much before was just Spock's popularity. I, I, I found that to be one of the more utopian aspects of the series that. There was maybe a, a hopeful comment on uh, American society as a whole that, that Spock would emerge as the most popular character, even though he's the other. He's not fully human, and he's very different in a lot of ways than, than humans uh, normally are. Uh, and so I think the fact that, that so many people could identify so, so strongly with Spock uh, is, is a very positive and hopeful sign for the future of the world. So what do you hope the book will do? Uh, well, I hope that it will help uh, people who are fans of the series to gain a little bit more sophisticated understanding of some of the things that are going on. Because as I said, I, even though I, I was very careful to try to keep the book accessible to a general audience, uh, I also tried to maintain academic rigor, which is, you know, it's really the only way I know how to write. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and look at a lot of issues in very serious ways. And so I think, I hope that it will help people who have previously just enjoyed the series maybe to understand it better. Uh, and in the same way, maybe help people who have had an academic uh, understanding of the series for a while to enjoy it more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hopefully it can bring those two, two uh, camps of, of trekkers together. Can you speak to any difficulties you had in getting the book um, finished or published and how you overcame those? Uh, not really. I mean, it went very, very smoothly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was uh, uh, writing on a fairly tight schedule. My, my main difficulty was just the fact that I, I had the first of a series of eye surgeries mm-hmm. in the midst of writing it. And so during the last part of the writing, my vision wasn't that good because that that's just me. Uh, I think the book itself went uh, came together really nicely. Uh, the publishers were very pleased with it when they got it. I think they suggested almost no revisions. Uh, the, I think one of the copy editors found a couple of minor little details that they suggested could be cleared up, and, and that was very helpful. But it, it really went uh, very seamlessly all the way through the press. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Um What's your next writing project? Well, uh, the project that I'm writing, uh, actually, I just finished writing another book for Roman and Littlefield, the publishers of the Star Trek book, on, on the films of the Coen brothers. Mm. Uh, and uh, so, in a way, that's my next project, so it's finished. So I, I just sent it to the publisher uh, just very recently. Uh, and uh, other than that, the thing that I'm writing right now is actually an, an informal textbook uh, for use by my own students. There's a, there's a course that I teach every spring that's uh, called the Survey of Modern British, Irish, and Post-Colonial Literature and Culture in English. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a long title, mm-hmm. but it has a lot of material in it. And because it covers so much material, uh, I've always felt it would be great to have a good textbook so the students would have something to maybe study and and go over in, in uh, detail. And But at the same time, to cover the material that I cover in my class from the pre-existing books, it looks like it would take you know three or four books at least, and, and they're already having to read a, a lot of material uh, of primary materials for the class. So mm-hmm. I decided that I would just uh, take uh, this fall and write a textbook for that class. It may evolve into something that I'll uh, market more broadly, but right now I'm just writing it with my students in my class in mind, so I'll have a custom-built textbook that I can just give to my students for free, and uh, and they can uh, read and have all the material that I want them to know together in one place, mm-hmm. and 
music to support that class. And if it goes well, I may I may do it for some of my other classes. I, I found that I've really enjoyed it. It's kind of liberating to not have to worry about uh, you know a more uh, a broader coverage or a broader audience. And you know I, I don't have to worry. If you're normally writing a textbook on modern British and post-colonial literature, you'd have to worry about what other people might teach and that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. for now, I only have to worry about what I teach, and so I can just cover that. And it's been. And I don't maybe have to be absolutely as rigorous in terms of dotting every I, crossing every T, documenting every little thing. And so it's, it's been kind of uh, fun to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's basically just sort of, I guess, transcribing my lectures into a more formal form. A lot of it is just literally just taking my lecture notes and editing them into a nice coherent narrative that the students can read. Okay. Yeah, the, I'm a big fan of the Cohen Brothers, so that uh, that book you have coming out sounds pretty exciting. It was really fun to do. I mean, I, I, I've been a big fan of the Cohen Brothers literally since Blood Simple came out in 1984. I was absolutely amazed by that movie mm-hmm. uh, when it came out, and I've uh, been uh, a, a big fan of theirs ever since, and it was really fun to get to go back and watch all of their movies carefully again, one right after the other, uh, in the words and it's amazing the, the broad range of uh, sort of genres and themes and, and atmospheres they can create uh, in their movies. The uh, versatility they have is, is pretty awesome. Yeah, they're very versatile. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is, is their, their intense engagement with place. I mean, a lot of a lot of directors have that, but they usually only have it for one place, like Scorsese in New York or something like that. But the Coen brothers have a different place in every film that they seem to be able to really bring the life and, and engage with uh, in a and in a, a very profound way but also in a kind of uh, oblique and offbeat way so i mean one of the the, the prevailing uh metaphor that i use throughout the book was that their films are all set in sort of alternate reality so they have you know old brother where art thou is really set in 1930 mississippi it's set in a, an alternate reality version of 1930s mississippi uh, or the Big Lebowski is not really set in Los Angeles. It's set in a kind of alternate reality version of Los Angeles. And their alternate realities are basically built out of bits and pieces of cultural history, other films, novels, you know, whatever. So they look at other represent. They're not really representing, say, Los Angeles directly. They're representing representations of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. They, they haven't done any science fiction work, have they? They actually <laughs> There's a, I, I, I talked about that at the beginning of the Corn Brothers book because, you know, the alternate reality thing is a science fiction metaphor. And yeah. I, I mentioned that uh, I'm using a science fiction metaphor to read their film. And then there's actually a quote uh, from one of the brothers. That I, told this, I can't remember if it was Joel or Ethan now, but one of them said that science fiction was the one genre that they would never do because they just um, it just doesn't appeal to them. Of course, their next film might be a science fiction film. You never know. But, but uh, they, they, they have, I think, been quite consciously staying away from science fiction. Hmm, interesting. Um, so where can people find um, this book and your other works? Well, the, this book and the other, for that matter, uh, you find them the same place you find everything else these days, which is on Amazon, which is the, you know, the biggest uh, uh player in the, the book selling business these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what all kinds of distribution. I mean, you could order it from any bookstore in America, mm-hmm. probably, but I'm not sure how many would have it in stock, but lots of places have it online. Barnes & Noble has it online. Uh, Amazon has it online. Uh, so they're, they're in stock and available. It's only been out for a few weeks now, but they're, they're definitely in stock and available on Amazon and other online booksellers for sure. Do you have a social media presence or anything that people can Not really right now. We're actually working on that because Roman and Littlefield just got a report back from some marketing uh, company that they engaged that said that they felt like this book might have potentially a much bigger market than they had originally expected. And so they they encouraged them to try to build an online presence. Roman and Littlefield has a, a website, of course, and it's on their website. But there's not a lot of opportunity for online communities and people to talk about the book and that sort of thing, other than Amazon comments and things like that. But but there probably will be in the near future a little bit more of that. Mm-hmm. All right, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? I don't 
So, I mean, I, I would just like to emphasize how much I enjoyed uh, doing this book uh, and how much fun it's been to re-engage with this series. It's been such a part of my life for so long, and uh, I hope I, I, it can help other people to uh, bring Star Trek into their lives as well. All right. Well, thanks for speaking with me. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit chrisalvarez.com or theartofsciencefiction.com for more great interviews, photos, and articles. Your visits help support this podcast. Please remember that my first name, Chris, does not have an H in it. One of the best ways to provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Please give me a good rating if you liked it, or feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't. I'll use that feedback to make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC, on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC, and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the future.